Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In December 1989, Ivana Trump was enjoying a Christmas holiday with her family in Aspen, Colorado. Ivana and her husband, who she referred to as the Donald, had spent the previous decade building an empire and trying to climb their way to the top of New York's most elite and refined social circles. But the life they built together began to unravel when a pretty young blonde woman approached Ivana outside Bonnie's restaurant midway up Aspen Mountain. In front of several onlookers, the younger woman said to Ivana, I'm Marla and I'm in love with your husband. Are you? Without missing a beat, Ivana answered, get lost. Then Mrs. Trump, a former competitive skier, reportedly skied off down the hill. The dramatic scene marked the beginning of a divorce that made front page news for the next two years, with splashy headlines calling it the billion dollar blow up. But the Trumps weren't the only couple caught up in relationship scandals. There was plenty of drama and excitement to go around. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at some very messy, high-profile breakups. As I mentioned, Ivana and Donald Trump were quite the power couple. They met in 1976, the same year Trump began one of his first construction projects in Manhattan. Nine months later, the couple was married— and they began building a family. Donald Jr. was born in December 1977, followed by Ivanka in 1981 and Eric in 1984. While the Trump family was growing, so was the Trump organization, with the opening of numerous properties, including Trump Tower, Trump Place, the Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, and Mar-a-Lago. All the while, the couple was spending a fortune on opulent homes, including their 50-room penthouse at Trump Tower, as well as a $29 million yacht christened the Trump Princess. In a decade full of greed, glitziness, and excess, they were considered the flashiest. Ivana, who was a former model raised in communist Czechoslovakia, played an active role in the family business. In addition to being the VP of Interior Design for the Trump Organization, she also managed the iconic Plaza Hotel, which they purchased in 1988. In this 1985 interview, Ivana said she and her husband both like to relax at home in the evenings with their children. If you give 10 hours of hard work during the day and you're wheeling and beaming and scheming and dealing, at the evening you just want to have your peace. But the marriage was far from perfect. Before the big blow-up in Aspen in 1989, there was talk that Trump didn't like his wife's desire to climb up the social ladder. He detested schmoozing with the people he called New York phonies. Plus, there were persistent rumors about Trump's infidelity. He was linked with many different women, 
including Dynasty actor Katherine Oxenberg, model Carol Alt, figure skater Peggy Fleming, and even Mike Tyson's ex-wife Robin Givens. But in the late 80s, he seemed to only have eyes for a young woman from Dalton, Georgia. In 1985, Donald Trump met 21-year-old Marla Maples at a celebrity tennis tournament in Atlantic City. At the time, she was a struggling model and actress trying to make it in New York. I'm learning to be more patient with it and just make each day count. Uh, use it, each opportunity that you find can be so instrumental in your future. By 1987, Trump and Maples were having an affair, going on secret dates in the back of his limo. Over the next couple of years, things got less discreet. Trump moved Marla onto his luxe yacht, the Trump Princess, and he brought her on family vacations, putting her up in a nearby hotel so he could take a break from the wife and kids to visit his young mistress. But by all accounts, Ivana had no idea the marriage was in trouble. That is, until Marla confronted her on that Aspen ski hill. Five weeks after the encounter, Trump told his wife he wanted a divorce. Just as he was leaving for Japan to watch the heavyweight championship fight between Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas. On February 11th, 1990, while Trump was still away, the story broke in the New York tabloid The Daily News that the Trump marriage was ending, causing a sensation among gossip columnists who scrambled to get more dirt on the breakup. For days, details about Trump's affair with Marla Maples were splashed across the front pages of the city's daily papers, along with Ivana's refusal to accept a prenup agreement which entitled her to a $25 million settlement. At the time, Donald Trump's worth was estimated at $1.7 billion. So a settlement of $25 million meant Ivana was only entitled to 1.5% of his fortune. And in her opinion, that wasn't enough. Ivana's lawyer called the prenup unconscionable and fraudulent, setting the stage for a messy and epic court battle. In an interview with People magazine, Donald responded by saying a deal's a deal, and he maintained the prenup was airtight. Then on February 17, 1990, nearly a week after the story broke, the New York Post upped the ante with a front page headline that made even some hardcore tabloid journalists blush. Beside a picture of a smirking Donald Trump, it read, the best sex I've ever had, which was attributed to Marla Maples about her older lover. The headline is legendary. In fact, it's possibly one of the most well-known tabloid covers ever. And it turns out there's a little bit more to the story. In 2018, Jill Brooke, a former New York Post reporter, told The Hollywood Reporter that Donald Trump himself planted the story in the paper because he felt Ivana was getting too much sympathetic coverage and he was losing in the court of public opinion. Brooke says she was in the room when Trump called Post editor Jerry Knackman and demanded a front page story. Knackman told him, that's not how it works. Trump then asked, what makes a front page story then? And Knackman replied, it's usually murder, money, or sex. And to that, Trump shot back, Marla says with me, it's the best sex she's ever had. Thus was born the famous headline, the best sex I ever had. The weekend after the story broke, even Saturday Night Live weighed in on the matter with a skit about the Trump prenup, 
featuring Jan Hooks as Ivana and Phil Hartman as Donald. That contract is invalid. You have a mistress, Donald. Okay. I must remind you, Ivana, that according to Section 5, Paragraph 2, I'm allowed to have mistresses provided they are younger than you. For nearly two weeks straight, the story stayed on the front page of the New York tabloids. With headlines like Over Her Dead Body, Gimme the Plaza, and Don Juan. The Trump divorce even relegated coverage about the release of Nelson Mandela on February 11th to the back pages of the New York dailies. And it wasn't just the tabs covering this story. Mainstream media, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Associated Press, and Time Magazine, ran details of the messy breakup. Trump, who normally reveled in media exposure, was surprised how much news coverage his love life was getting, something he talked about on The Larry King Show. But knowing that now, is there anything you could have done differently? Probably not. I mean, the press puts an article on the front page, whether it's the New York Post or the Daily News or whatever newspaper it might be. And if it sells, and all of a sudden they notice that day they sold more newspapers, they're going to do it again, and they're going to do it again. Meanwhile, throughout the storm of coverage, Marla Maples remained in seclusion. But television and the tabloids were filled with photos, some fairly revealing, of the one-time homecoming queen, who was often portrayed as a ditzy, shapely homewrecker. Finally, in April, she sat down with Diane Sawyer for an exclusive interview on ABC's Primetime Live, in which she declared her love for Trump and maintained that she was not the reason for his marital problems. As the divorce battle waged on, Donald Trump was facing a public relations war on another front. He was drowning in debt, $3 billion to be exact, forcing him to sell off his recently purchased Trump airline shuttle, his 282-foot yacht, and other assets to keep creditors at bay. And in May, Forbes magazine reported Trump's financial worth had dropped two-thirds to half a billion dollars, down from $1.7 billion in 1989. The magazine removed him from the Forbes 400 of richest Americans, which enraged Trump, who claimed Forbes undervalued his properties because they were out to get him. The news didn't stop Ivana and her legal team from going after Trump for more than the $25 million set out in the prenup. In December 1990, after 11 months of turbocharged rumors and worldwide publicity, Donald and Ivana were granted a divorce in a brief proceeding in a Manhattan court. But the tough job of deciding who would get what in the split wasn't dealt with until March 1991. That's when a judge awarded Ivana a $14 million settlement, along with $650,000 annually for child support as well as the couple's 45-room mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, an apartment in the Trump Plaza, as well as use of the Mar-a-Lago mansion for one month a year. The agreement was similar to what had been laid out in the prenup, but Ivana's lawyer said because of Trump's financial troubles, she wanted to take the money now rather than hold out for a better deal. The 13-month saga made Ivana one of the most famous divorcees of all time a title she maintained for long enough to begin poking fun at it, including when she made a cameo appearance in the 1996 movie The First Wives Club. Ivana, I want to thank you for coming so much. You're an angel. Oh, of course, I Thank you so much again. Ladies, we have to be strong and independent. And remember... What? 
don't get mad. Get everything. As for Trump's relationship with Marla Maples, it continued to be covered by the tabloids, who reported their engagement and wedding plans that got postponed at least five times. Then when Maples became pregnant, she issued an ultimatum to Trump, who finally walked down the aisle with his young bride on December 20th, 1993, two months after the birth of their daughter, Tiffany. The couple split six years later in 1999, after Trump met another young model who would become his third wife. The Trumps weren't the only couple to dominate the tabloids in the 1990s. In fact, this next couple had been the target of the tabloids from the very beginning of their relationship, when news of their courtship jumped from the sports pages to the front page. Judy Nelson was a traditional housewife and mom living in Fort Worth, Texas, when she met, then fell in love with tennis star Martina Navratilova in the early 1980s. In fact, her 11-year-old son, who was a ball boy, introduced Nelson to the athlete. Nelson's marriage was on the rocks, and she felt an instant bond with the former Czech player. In June 1984, Nelson filed for divorce, and the next day attended Wimbledon to watch Navratilova, who entered the tournament as the top seed, having won an incredible 85 out of her last 86 matches. Reporters were quick to notice Nelson, sitting at center court, smiling at Navratilova from the player's box. The British media went absolutely wild, especially when they found out that Nelson was technically still married. For the rest of the tournament, tabloid reporters and paparazzi followed their every move, camping out on the lawn of the Georgian house Navratilova had rented in Wimbledon Village. The tennis star called them all scum, and later, when photographers feverishly snapped photos of Nelson blowing her kisses following an early round victory, Navratilova called them pathetic and told reporters at a post-match news conference she would remove all British events other than Wimbledon from her schedule. But that didn't stop Fleet Street from carrying sensational stories about Navratilova and Nelson throughout the rest of the tournament. They described Nelson as a Texas beauty queen and socialite, filling the pages of the tabs with photos of her husband and two young sons. Their rabid attention pushed Wimbledon officials to issue a statement permitting players to walk out of press conferences when the questions were too provocative or about things other than tennis. Despite the whirlwind, Navratilova was unstoppable in the final against her longtime rival, Chris Everett Lloyd. It's out. That's it. Game set up. It was Navratilova's third straight Wimbledon title. Back in Fort Worth, Texas, Navratilova and Nelson moved in together. Nelson's younger son lived with them, while her older son remained with his dad. In 1984, two women openly living together and raising a child was virtually unheard of. But for Navratilova, who publicly came out as bisexual in 1981, it wasn't her first open relationship with a woman. Over the years, she'd lived with feminist writer Rita Mae Brown and basketball player Nancy Lieberman, which Navratilova said cost her sponsorships and endorsements. Six months after Judy Nelson's appearance at Wimbledon, they were married in a private commitment ceremony in an empty church in Brisbane, Australia. Two years after that, in 1986, Nelson signed a partnership or cohabitation agreement, which would entitle Nelson to half of what Navratilova earned during their relationship if they ever split. 
For a time, though, it seemed they were a perfect match. They traveled the world together for 11 months out of the year. Navratilova played tennis, and Nelson ran the tennis star's life off the court, even helping to design Navratilova's line of tennis clothes. Despite their openness about their relationship, newspapers often refer to the couple as business partners, friends, or housemates. And during tennis matches, sports commentators awkwardly looked for words to describe Nelson's role in Navratilova's life. In April 1991, according to Nelson, Navratilova left for a tournament one day and never came back. Within days, Nelson says her credit cards and even her gym membership were cut off. And despite having a signed agreement, much like a prenup, that entitled Nelson to half of Navratilova's earnings while they were together, the tennis star said she had no plans of sharing. In fact, she claimed to have no knowledge of what was in the agreement they both signed. So in June 1991, just before Navratilova left for Wimbledon, Nelson served her with a lawsuit, seeking to enforce the agreement, which would give her half of the assets accumulated during their seven-year relationship. Nelson's lawyer said his client's share should equal between five and $10 million. Included with the documents filed in court was a copy of a videotape that was recorded in February 1986 when Nelson and Martina signed the partnership agreement. In the video, they are sitting side by side in pink beanbag chairs, each holding a pet in their lap, listening to a paralegal explain the agreements. Likewise, Martina, as you make money and uh, win tennis tournaments or whatever else you may do, what you do during the period is half hers. When the news of the lawsuit broke, Navratilova made a statement, saying that she was very hurt because what was once a loving relationship had come down to greed and money. And she accused Nelson of being malicious by filing the lawsuit just before Wimbledon because she knew how much the tournament meant to her. Once again, newspapers were filled with details of their relationship and speculation about what came between the two. Meanwhile, Judy went on the offensive, sitting down for an interview on NBC, saying she was very proud of the things she contributed to Navratilova's life and career. I didn't actually hit the tennis ball, but I did everything else there was to do. Everything. So that all she had to do was play tennis. Navratilova didn't respond until after Wimbledon, where she finished third, beat out in the quarterfinals by Jennifer Capriati. In July 1991, she sat down to talk to Barbara Walters on 2020. Do you think you would have won Wimbledon this year if you hadn't been served with that summons, if this hadn't happened? That's, you know, that's hindsight. Uh, I'm sure that it would have helped had I not had this hanging. Now, you know, maybe last or uh, last one or two years of my career and I'm uh, saddled with this uh, lawsuit. I have to think about that instead of uh, enjoying my game. So that's, that's pretty sad for me. Then in September 1991, the former couple met in person for the first time in a Fort Worth courtroom. And even though it was just a pretrial hearing, at least eight British tabloid reporters made the trip across the pond to cover the case. Navratilova spent six hours on the stand and began crying when the video that showed the couple going through the agreement together was played in court. She had to leave the stand for about five minutes to pull herself together, and from her seat, Judy Nelson also wiped away tears. Outside the courtroom, the gaggle of British reporters asked Navratilova why she cried during the video, 
to which she answered, I'd rather not talk about it. After the second day of testimony, the case took a surprising turn. The former couple spent several hours with their lawyers behind closed doors to see if they could put an end to the lawsuit. Discussions continued for the rest of the week and seemed to be making progress, but they were stuck on one thing. Judy Nelson was refusing to sign a non-publicity agreement, which would prevent her from writing a book about their time together. She felt it was a violation of her right to free speech. The judge overseeing the case put the suit on hold and encouraged the pair to try to reach an out-of-court settlement. The back-and-forth discussions received heavy coverage in the media. And looking back at it today, it's pretty shocking to see some of it is tinged with homophobic comments. Often the focus seemed to be more on their sexuality as opposed to the facts of the lawsuit. Editorials, columns, and letters to the editor also frequently painted Judy Nelson as a gold digger who had deserted her kids for a life with a famous tennis star. In January 1992, without an agreement between the two sides, the judge said the matter would go to trial in April, which seemed to be the spark needed. Because in March 1992, after eight months of legal wrangling, Nelson and Navratilova reached an agreement. The exact details were kept confidential, but lawyers for both sides confirmed that Nelson would get their $1.3 million home in Aspen. Plus, she would not be prevented from writing a book about her former relationship with the Queen of the Tennis Court. Which she did. Released in May 1993, Love Match, Nelson versus Navratilova, didn't reveal a ton of intimate details about their relationship. Nelson said instead she wrote it to help people understand gay relationships better so they would be more open to alternative lifestyles. As for Martina Navratilova, she never won another singles Wimbledon title. But in 1994, at age 37, Navratilova reached the Wimbledon final where she lost in three sets to Conchita Martinez. Later that year, she retired from full-time competition on the singles tour. She won one more Wimbledon tournament in 2003 in mixed doubles, and three years later, she found love again with Julia Lemagova. In 2014, Navratilova proposed at the U.S. Open and a few months later married the former model from Russia, who you may know from the Real Housewives of Miami. The final breakup I'm going to tell you about hit the news in the summer of 1992. And just a warning, some of the details include allegations of sexual abuse against a child. Prolific filmmaker Woody Allen stunned the world when he filed a child custody lawsuit against his longtime companion, actor Mia Farrow. Allen and Farrow had been an item since 1980, and their unorthodox relationship had been something of a New York institution. The couple never married and didn't even live together. They famously had separate apartments which faced each other across Central Park. Allen said he preferred to live on his own so he could focus on making films and not be distracted by the daily responsibilities of their complicated family life. Together, the couple had three children, two adopted, 14-year-old Moses and 7-year-old Dylan, and one biological 4-year-old son named Satchel, who today goes by the name Ronan. Pharaoh had eight other children of her own, five of which were adopted. Just the three children they shared were named in the custody lawsuit. The news of the suit was surprising, but the reason for the split was even more stunning. 
On August 17, 1992, the New York Daily News revealed that Allen was having an affair with Mia Farrow's 21-year-old adopted daughter, Soon Yi Previn. Farrow had discovered the relationship eight months earlier when she found nude photos of Soon Yi at Allen's apartment. After the tabloids broke the story, Allen released a written statement confirming it was all true. In it, he said, quote, Regarding my love for Soon Yi, it's real. She's a lovely, intelligent, sensitive woman who has and continues to turn around my life in a wonderfully positive way. The news was sensational, and it raised the question of whether art imitates life or the other way around. That's because Woody Allen was known for writing films about sympathetic characters who, against their better judgment, get involved in taboo romantic entanglements. Take, for example, the movie Manhattan, in which a 47-year-old writer, played by Allen, gets involved with a 17-year-old high school student, played by Mariel Hemingway. You can't be in love with me. We've been over this. You're a kid. You don't know what love means. I don't know what it means. Nobody out there knows what the hell's going on. We have laughs together. I care about you. Your concerns are my concerns. We have great sex. The news had gossip columnists working overtime to get the details of Alan's relationship with Soon Yi, who was a college student at the time. But before the information was barely digested, another bomb dropped. News reports revealed that Connecticut State Police were investigating Woody Allen on charges of sexual assault against a minor. Specifically, the couple's adopted seven-year-old daughter, Dylan. New Yorkers, who considered Allen to be something similar to a patron saint, were beyond shocked. They found it hard to believe that one of the most famous filmmakers of his generation could be accused of such things. Each side in the dispute lobbed bombs at each other through the media for days. Allen said the allegations were totally false and outrageous, and he accused Farrow of trying to extort money out of him to have the charges dropped. But a spokesman for Farrow said she had videotaped evidence of Dylan describing how Allen allegedly abused her at Farrow's home in Connecticut in August 1992. Right around the time news of their split was revealed when Allen filed his child custody suit. The tape was made just one day after the alleged incident. Dylan seems teary-eyed as she describes what allegedly took place in the attic of their Bridgewater, Connecticut home. Dylan indicates with gestures what she claims happened. In response to the accusations, Allen held a news conference at the Plaza Hotel, which reporters said bordered on bizarre. Wearing his usual Oxford cloth shirt and khaki slacks, Allen stepped up to a mic and read from a two-page prepared statement. He said he wanted to try to dispel all the rumors, innuendos, and cruel untruths that had been swirling in the previous days. Allen said the allegations that he abused seven-year-old Dylan were false and nothing but a weapon in the attack on his efforts to win custody of the children. He then left the room without answering any questions. In an equally bizarre move, Mia Farrow didn't address reporters directly when they turned up for comment at Frog Hollow, her country house in Bridgewater, Connecticut. Instead, she sent out her children's 23-year-old nanny to read a prepared statement, which said Farrow would not be giving interviews because she did not want the case tried in the media. 
The custody battle went to trial in March 1993. But even before it began, the public learned that a team of child abuse investigators at a hospital in Connecticut had concluded that seven-year-old Dylan had not been sexually abused by her father or anyone else. The hospital report described Dylan as a dreamy child who had difficulty distinguishing fantasy from reality. The report wasn't intended for the public, but Allen and his lawyer held a news conference to announce the findings and insisted that Mia Farrow had coached Dylan to make the accusations, something that Farrow denied. It's a very upsetting tape, and it's obvious to anybody who, who, who sees it that there's no coaching there. Um, even Mr. Allen knows that. First of all, he knows Dylan, and you can't coach Dylan into anything. And second of all, it's obvious from the, from the quality of what she's saying, from the, from the urgency with, with which she's saying it. The drama played out at the state Supreme Court in Manhattan. Spectators and reporters filled the dark-paneled courtroom to hear details of a relationship that had been fastidiously shrouded in privacy for 12 years. When Allen took the stand on the first day of the trial, he described the breakdown of their relationship, which he says began in 1989 when Farrell was pregnant with their son, Satchel Ronan. And he provided intimate details of his affair with Sunyi Previn, which he says began when she came home from college for Christmas break in 1991. It was just a couple of weeks later that Mia Farrow found a half dozen nude photos of her adopted daughter in Allen's apartment. In court, Mia Farrow glared, sometimes tearfully, at Woody Allen as he talked about how their relationship deteriorated and how Farrow wanted him to stay away from their three children, Moses, Dylan, and Satchel. Allen testified for three days. At times, he was confident and calm with an arm draped over the back of his chair, and he gave long conversational answers to his lawyer that were sometimes even funny. But by the last day during cross-examination, his confidence had waned. He sat hunched over in the witness box and spoke quietly, sometimes even mumbling. When it was Mia Farrow's turn, she took the stand dressed in a pleated teal skirt and a navy blazer. She spoke slowly and chose her words carefully as she responded to questions about why Alan shouldn't get custody of their three children. She testified he had always been obsessed with Dylan, sometimes lying with his head in her lap. From the time she was about three, Farrow says she worried that Alan might have a sexual attachment to Dylan. Then in August 92, Farrow says Dylan told her that Alan took her to the attic and touched her in certain places. Farrow says she picked up a camera and videotaped the little girl describing the incident. My family has been living through a nightmare. My children have been ripped apart emotionally, and I'm so proud of the way they've held themselves together. The trial lasted about six weeks and was filled with dramatic and sometimes theatrical testimony from more than 30 witnesses, including seven psychotherapists, as well as lawyers, babysitters, and maids. Through a volley of angry charges and countercharges, both Allen and Farrow were painted as pretty horrible parents. Then a month later, on June 7, 1993, the judge overseeing the case awarded Mia Farrow custody of all three children. Woody Allen was allowed supervised visitation with five-year-old Satchel Ronan, equaling two hours three times a week, and there would be no visitation with 15-year-old Moses unless he wanted it. 
As for seven-year-old Dylan, Alan was barred from visiting with her until the child was seen by a therapist to determine if visits with Alan would be harmful. In handing down the decision, Judge Elliot Wilk torpedoed Allen, calling him a self-absorbed, untrustworthy, and insensitive man with no parenting skills, which he said was proven by the fact that he had an affair with his children's older sister. And even though child sex abuse investigators from Connecticut had cleared Allen of the charges involving Dylan, The judge said he had reservations about the hospital probe and was less certain that the evidence proved conclusively that there was no sexual abuse. He believed the conclusion may have been colored by the investigator's loyalty to Allen. In other words, they may have been swayed by his celebrity status. Three months later, the criminal investigation against Woody Allen also came to a close when a state's attorney in Connecticut said the director would not be prosecuted. But not because the prosecutor believed Allen was innocent. In fact, Frank Macko said he had probable cause to prosecute the case, but after a discussion with Mia Farrow, it was decided to spare Dylan the trauma of testifying in court. Mako seemed to go out of his way to say publicly that the child had been abused, which some legal scholars said was inappropriate. Basically, they believed it wasn't right for Mako to declare Allen guilty and then say, we're not going to prosecute, leaving him no avenue to defend himself except through the media. The breakup and subsequent sex abuse allegations resulted in a torrent of negative publicity for Allen in the 1990s, but it didn't seem to impact his career all that much. Well, at least at first. He continued making movies about one a year, with big Hollywood stars attached to each project, and he even won a Best Original Screenplay Oscar in 2012 for the film Midnight in Paris. But then in 2014, when he received a Golden Globe Lifetime Achievement Award, things began to change. Following the recognition, Allen's adopted daughter Dylan, who was now 28 years old, published an open letter in the New York Times. In it, she maintained that Allen had assaulted her, providing explicit details of the attic incident. And she said the torment of the abuse was made worse by Hollywood turning a blind eye. And she named actors specifically. Dylan asked, What if it had been your child, Kate Blanchett and Alec Baldwin? What if it had been you, Emma Stone or Scarlett Johansson? Why shouldn't I feel some sort of (sighs) outrage that after all these years being ignored and disbelieved? The letter and subsequent interviews by Dylan marked the beginning of a sea change for Alan's reputation. During the Me Too movement, the allegations of sex abuse against Allen resurfaced again, and it led to Amazon canceling a $68 million film deal with the director. In fact, Satchel Ronan Farrow was one of the investigative reporters who first published details of Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse allegations, and Farrow won a Pulitzer for his work in The New Yorker magazine. He has often mentioned his regret of not believing his sister when he was younger as a reason for his dogged reporting style. In 2021, an HBO documentary called Alan v. Farrow shredded what was left of Woody Allen's reputation. 
Allen, who remains married to Soon Yi Previn, responded to the documentary by calling it a shoddy hit piece, which was made by people who had no interest in the truth. Thanks for listening to this look back at some very messy breakups that made news in the 1990s. If you have a suggestion for a topic, I'd love to hear from you. Just send me a message on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also send me an email to 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.